Dear brethren, welcome to the Feast of Pentecost. Here we are, having the great privilege of practicing God's law, God's statutes. The statutes are ramifications of the first four commandments that define our relationship with God. And here we have this tremendous privilege of understanding what was behind the meaning of these feasts that the eternal established for Israel and for the whole world. Why are we here? We thank God that we are following the example of Mr. Herbert Armstrong, who put to work the practicing of these feasts. And thanks to his faith, he was given understanding of the plan of God through the feasts. It's an amazing privilege to be here practicing these things and being blessed by the obedience of one man like all of Israel and the world have been blessed through the obedience of Abraham. So, brethren, I would like to read some verses written by the Apostle Paul concerning the meaning of these feasts and what we are able to learn by practicing them. Good understanding have those that practice his commandments. To know is not enough. Knowledge has to be applied. That's our wisdom, like God said in Deuteronomy chapter 4 and verse 5. I give you statutes. Put them to work, and that will be your wisdom and your intelligence before the whole world. How can we understand what God is doing on earth? Thanks to these feasts, where things were hidden, even before the beginning of time, God had a plan, like is written in the book of Titus, chapter 1 and verse 2, to give eternal life. And there is a process. I remember a friend of mine in a country down south of the border asking me, why is it essential to keep the feasts of God? Why is this the sign of the true church of God? Brethren, we are going to see one aspect of the many aspects of these feasts today. The word of God is like a diamond that can be seen in many angles and is always shining with new colors and combinations of colors like seven notes of music can produce so many beautiful melodies and is always something that cannot be exhausted. So the word of God is full of death and meaning and we have to thank God for it from our hearts for the tremendous privilege of being able to be here Observing these feasts that God commanded for his church. And that are the sign. The Sabbaths are the sign between Christ and his church. You remember that scripture? I will not go to all of them. But it's certainly chapter 31 of the book of Exodus. Where God says, you keep my Sabbaths. And he's speaking in plural because there are seven of them throughout the year. And that will be the sign between you and me. The sign between the husbands, the husband and the wife. Between the bride and the bridegroom. 
The obedience to those feasts, to those feasts are the sign of who is the wife of the Lamb. Without keeping those feasts, we cannot be the wife of the Lamb, the bride. And that's a tremendous mystery. What God was hidden behind those concepts of family that he had conceived even before he created humans on this earth. So let's go to chapter 3 of the book of Ephesians. And we'll read a few scriptures to really get involved with a tremendous meaning which I do not pretend to exhaust today of these feasts, my dear brethren. In chapter 3, in verse 5, Ephesians chapter 3 and verse 5, the Apostle Paul says, speaking of the mystery that is behind the gospel, which is actually the purpose of God, For humankind. And he says. Which in other ages was not made known to the sons of men. Nobody knew what God was doing. Remember the prophets. They wanted to know. What was God doing? What on earth was God doing? It was not given to them to understand. Like the apostle Peter says to us. In his epistle. It was reserved for us. Who have come into the end time. The end time is the last 2,000 years, my dear brethren, the last days of the week that God established to achieve His plan on this earth. Chapter 3 and verse 5 of the book of Ephesians. Let's rejoice in understanding these words and appreciating the tremendous privilege that we have before God which in other ages was not made known to the sons of men, not even to the prophets. Brethren, they knew something was going on. They had a hint of it. But the whole thing has been revealed to us through the feasts. As it has now been revealed by the Spirit, by to His holy apostles and prophets. And then he says in chapter 3 and verse 8, of Ephesians, the Apostle Paul, to me, who am less than the least of all the saints, this grace was given, that I should preach among the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ, and to make all people see what is the fellowship of the mystery which from the beginning of the ages has been hidden in God, who created all things through Jesus Christ. Do we appreciate this privilege, brethren? We'll see just one aspect of it today. There are many others. I don't pretend to exhaust the riches and the depth of the Word of God. Let's look now into 1 Corinthians chapter 2. And see the Apostle Paul introducing us to these marvelous subjects of the plan of God and the mystery that was hidden that nobody know. Nobody knew it. It has been revealed to us. So in chapter 2 of the book of 1 Corinthians, in verse 6, let's read. 1 Corinthians chapter 2 
and verse 6. It says, However, we speak wisdom among those who are mature. Remember that wisdom comes only when we put to work God's statutes and commandments. The, the mere knowledge of them, like many had in the church that was before the era of Philadelphia, was not enough. It was necessary to put them to work, to receive the understanding that was behind them. That's why we are so privileged that we have received the blessings of someone who had that conviction, put them to work. And then the word that is written, good understanding, have those that keep your commandments. Know those that know your commandments, those that know them and put them to work. Remember, write down that scripture, Deuteronomy chapter 4 and verse 5 and 6. I read now 1 Corinthians chapter 2 and verse 6. However, we speak wisdom among those who are mature, yet not the wisdom of this age. I studied philosophy, brethren, for several years. I didn't have a hint of what God is doing down here. Here we are. We're given the wisdom of God that is hidden to the wise and the understanding and the academics of this world, the academicians of this world, we can't say that. However, we speak wisdom among those who are mature. I read it again, 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 6. Yet not the wisdom of this age, nor of the rulers of this age, who are coming to nothing. But we speak the wisdom of God in mystery, the hidden wisdom which God ordained before the ages for our glory, which none of the rulers of this age knew. For had they known, they would have not crucified the Lord of glory. But as it is written, I has not seen nor ear heard, nor have entered into the heart of man the things which God has prepared for those that love him those that love him this is a matter of love god is love you know the scripture is clearly written and let's review it brethren god expects love from those that he has shown the greatest proof of love and let's read that in first john you i'm sure you know the scriptures this is Today we are going to approach from that point of view. The feasts are a love story written in seven chapters, brethren. That's what the feasts of God are. Everything God does comes out of love, outpouring love. The greatest love of what we are going to see, brethren. May God help us to appreciate it and not take it for granted and to respect it. And to practice love, which is the obedience of God's commandments. That's love, real love. The others might be just a feeling or some passing sentiment. Or the real thing, as we will see today, is that obedience to those commandments which Pentecost represents when they are written in our hearts, in our minds. So, in chapter 
4 and verse 8 of the book of 1 John. It says, he that does not love has not known God, because God is love. And in verse 16, and we have known and believed the love that God has for towards us. God is love, and he that remains in love remains in God, and God in him. We're going to see today, brethren, and we will have a review of the seven feasts, if time allows. We're going to see then, without much delay, the proof that the seven feasts represent a love story. A love story that starts with the greatest proof of love. Let's look at that in the book of John, chapter, that's the Gospel of John, chapter 15, brethren. The Gospel of John, chapter 15. Christ says to his disciples, He says, in verse 12, chapter 15 and verse 12, This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. How has he loved us, brethren? That's a great commandment. If we are able to love each other like he loved us, let's see how he loves us. Verse 13, that's John 15, verse 13. Greater love has no one than this, that you lay down one's life for his friends. To lay down one's life for his friends. God conceived this plan, this love story, before the beginning of the ages, before time was. That was his great purpose, to show us love and teach us to love. So, he says, I repeat, greater love has no one than this, than to lay down one's life for his friends. One's life. What does that mean, brethren? Let's look at something in the first chapter of this gospel. Chapter 1 of the book of John. Chapter 1 of the book of John, in verse 1, let's read. And we'll understand a little bit better, with the help of God, the magnitude of this love. Of someone to want to put down his own life for those that he loves. It's a love story. That's the Passover, as we will see, the beginning of this tremendous plan. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Many have tampered these words, changing the meaning, the tremendous meaning. The plagues written in this book will fall upon them, brethren, because it's the very essence of God's plan, that Jesus Christ is the Word, and that He was God before the beginning of time, and is God today, and will be God forever. 
Now, in verse 14 of this same chapter, chapter 1, verse 14, we read, And the Word became flesh. God, who is eternal, eternal life, Jesus Christ, was willing to become flesh and give his life. Where is the life of all flesh? He became human to be able to prove his love for us in a way that could not be denied. Let's look at chapter 17 of the book of Leviticus. Let the Bible interpret itself as we have learned from the church of God, the pillar and bulwark of the truth, the living church of God. Chapter 17 of the book of Leviticus, for us to understand the dimension of what this means. Chapter 17 and verse 11. For the life of the flesh is in the blood. So Christ, before he became Jesus Christ, was the word. And he was with God eternally. And he became flesh. So that he could have his life to offer. Because it's written, and the word of God cannot be broken. It's written in Leviticus 17 verse 11. For the life of the flesh is in the blood. And I have given it to you upon the altar to make atonement for your souls. I mean for your lives. For it is the blood that makes atonement for the soul, for the life. So Christ came to fulfill what was written here. And he gave up that eternal life for a while to become flesh. And prove to us how much he loves us. How much he loves that wife that he came to rescue. And then the rest of humanity as we will see. Each one in his own time. Each one in his own rank. As the harvests go throughout the year. First the first fruits and then the whole harvest. So we continue here in verse Chapter 17 and verse 14 of the book of Leviticus. For it is the life of all flesh. Its blood sustains its life. Therefore, I said to the children of Israel, you shall not eat blood. Anyway, but here we have the proof. From the moment the word became flesh, the life was in his blood. So what did he say? In chapter 15 of the book of John, he says, There is no greater love than this, that you give your life for those that you love, for your friends. And Christ came and shed his blood for us to prove his love. To prove that he loved us even if we were in sin. Like the book of Romans says in chapter 5. That's real love. To show his tremendous determination to achieve the purpose they have conceived. He cost his own life and he was willing to give it. And leave that proof to us. And then he says again in chapter 15. 
There is no greater love, in verse 13, that no one has than this, that to lay down one's life for his friends. And we read in Isaiah 53, to make it very plain to you, brethren, what Christ did for us, in chapter 53 of Isaiah and verse 10. Chapter 53 and verse 10. Then he pleased the Lord to bruise him, he has put him to grief. When you make his soul an offering for sin. His soul really means also his life. Not an immortal soul. His life who was in the blood. An offering for sin. And then we see a little bit further on. Chapter 53 of Isaiah. In verse 12. Therefore I will divide him a portion with the great. And he shall divide the spoil with the strong. Because he poured out his life. He poured out his life unto death. And he was numbered with the transgressors. So he took our sins upon him. So we could be rescued. And he paid the biggest price. His own life. And there is absolute proof of his love for us. Now, that's the Passover. We also use the scripture that, so that's the first chapter of this story, the love story. Love is, God is love, and he has proven to us, even when we were still sinners. There's no greater show of love than to give his blood, even for people that are still in sin, so he could rescue us and fulfill this plan of us being one with him. One. In perfect unity. Like he prayed to his father. Let's read in chapter 5 of the book of Romans. The greatness of God's love. Chapter 5. It says in verse 8. Romans chapter 5 verse 8. But God demonstrates his own love towards us. In that while we were still sinners. Christ died for us. Much more than then having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. For if when we were enemies, you were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. So let's continue, brethren, in chapter 1 of the first epistle of Peter, so that we, with the help of God, grasp the depth of his love for us in this first chapter who represents Christ becoming a human being, the Lamb of God, who saved the life of the firstborn in Egypt, who is saving the life of the firstborn of this era, which is like Egypt, a time of sin that is reaching the fullness of iniquity. How thankful we have to be, brethren, that we have been reconciled with God and will be saved by his life. Christ interceding for us. And us, we have to do our part. In chapter 1 of the first epistle of the apostle Peter, in verse 18, 
says, Knowing that you were not redeemed with corruptible things like silver or gold from your aimless conduct. Aimless conduct that we walk in astray from the way of the commandments of God. Aimless conduct. And we all were astray. Everybody, brethren. Conduct to your aimless conduct received by tradition from your fathers. All the way from Adam and Eve. From the time they decided to decide themselves which was good and which was and what was evil. We went aimless. All humanity. And here we have the privilege of being some of those few that do understand what's the real aim. Thanks to Christ who rescued us. But with the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. He indeed was foreordained before the foundation of the world. This world is being founded on the tree of good and evil brethren. And before man sinned, before Adam and Eve sinned, God took precautions and he knew his plan will not fail. Even if man sinned, God will achieve his plan and he will pay the price. We still have to learn our lessons, but he paid the price. Even before sin came, knowing the great possibility that that would happen. And then God would achieve his tremendous wisdom. Like by making all humanity, so to speak, subject to deception. We will all experience the consequences of sin. And when Christ will reveal his truth to us after we have burnt our fingers, so to speak. Then we will not want to go back there. But follow the way. The way of eternal life. The way of true happiness. So let's continue. He indeed was foreordained before the foundation of the world. But was manifest in these last times for you. Whom through him believe in God. Who raised him from the dead. And gave him glory. That your faith and hope are in God. So he rescued us through his death. And he is saving us through his life. By our communication, profound, loving communication with him. So he paid a ransom. He paid a dowry for his wife. You know that was a statute also, a judgment, so to speak. Judgment are the, the application, the ramifications of the last six, six commandments. The statutes are the ramifications of the four first commandments, the relationship with God, and the last six our commandments and have ramification our relationships with each other. A man had to pay 50 shekels of silver for his bride. He had to do something to show she was precious to him. And Christ didn't pay just with silver or gold. 50 shekels. He paid with his own blood, brethren. Indicating a dimension of love. So deep and profound. That, in, in, that it implies the greatest sacrifice and the greatest proof of love that's the passover christ giving his blood for us that's the first chapter we could say much more well let's go to the next one there is a dialogue here of love first god proves his love 
give us his full evidence. And Peter convinced those that were listening to him, you have crucified Jesus Christ, and we all have crucified him. So now as we know that he has rescued us through his blood, we have to respond. How? By obeying, by showing our love to him that gave us the greatest proof of love. So the second chapter of this love story is the Feast of Unleavened Bread. What does the bride do when she knows she's been rescued from, from death and she's destined for eternal life with her bride, bridegroom? They will say, I don't want to sin anymore. I want to obey God. I want to obey Jesus Christ and not repeat what caused his death. That's how God expects us to respond to that proof of love. Absolute hatred of sin and evil and total commitment to the one who gave his life to rescue us from it. It cannot be so, so. It has to be total, radical, complete surrender to that, to the one who gave everything until water came out of his body because there was not one drop of blood left in. That's what John points out that. To show that he proved his love. What do we do? Well we know we are guilty of his death. And being guilty we are even forgiven. And offered to be one with him for eternity. How do we respond to that brethren? That's the days of Oliver bread. With zeal we take sin out of our lives. We repent and we start showing real fruit of repentance. What is that? When we start obeying God, you know, before we're baptized, we have to prove that we're already obeying God and that we are producing fruit of repentance, real fruit of change. So that's what the Feast of Unleavened Bread represents in the second chapter of the love story. When the wife and the bride, the first fruits, remember, he first died for the first fruits. That's Passover. Remember that lamb of the Passover time in Egypt saved the life or of the firstborn. Now, he is saving the life of the firstborn in this world. Christ being the very firstborn and we are his brethren. Who will be born again. As we will see as we have time. So. Now we have to show love. Under such proof. Of total. Until only. Water came out. Total. Proof. Of love. And John wanted to give that witness. He was there by the cross when he saw it. How should we react. To show the such a proof of love by love what is love you know the definition brethren let's read let's read it in the bible in first john chapter 5 and verse 2 and then we have the definition given by god himself to us chapter 5 of first epistle of john let's start in verse 2 
By this we know that we love the children of God. When we love God and keep his commandments. Like I mentioned to you, the last six commandments are our relationship with our neighbor. It would be good to have time to analyze each one of them. And then the judgments are even more detailed explanations on how to apply those commandments in our mutual relationships. Those are the judgments of God. And let's read chapter 5, verse 3 of 1 John. For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments. And his commandments are not burdensome. That's love. If we say we love God, or we say we know God, God is love. And we don't obey his commandments, we're liars. If we're not keeping his commandments, we're not showing love to God. Because we are breaking that law that caused the death of Jesus Christ. If we're not careful, we might, even like Paul says, by our behavior, you will have to die again for us. If we do not take seriously his blood and the covenant of marriage, we're being called to celebrate with him. So this is love of God that we keep his commandments and his commandments are not burdensome. So Christ showed his love. He had no spot, no guilt, and shed his blood, his life for us. Greatest show of love, what he requires from us is that we love him also. And that's what the Feast of Unleavened Bread means, to absolutely take that leaven, which means pride, and humble ourselves before him by the fruit of repentance, which is the acknowledgement that we are guilty of death, and that only by the mercy of God we are given life. That true repentance is an act of humility. God resists the proud. That's where he starts, by not being puffed up, puffed up, but like unleavened bread, flat. We have nothing to glory about our own righteousness, brethren. It's like filthy rags before God. We're all guilty. And we need to show that recognition, that gratitude, and respond with love. And Christ himself explains it very clearly, so there is no doubt about it in the book of John. On John chapter 14, let's go there. How we respond to that love that he proved to us, we need to show him proof of our love by changing our lives when he opened our minds and show that we're being selected to be his wife, the first fruits. He will he pay for everybody. Actually, let me read that to you so we keep that in mind. And we'll go back to the Gospel of John. But it's important to keep in mind Christ died for us and for the whole world. Well, first for the first fruits. Those are that the ones that will resurrect first, that are destined to be the wife of the Lamb and follow him wherever he goes. So in chapter 1 of the book of John, we read, excuse me, chapter 1 of, of the first letter of, the, of John, we read chapter 
2, first epistle of John in verse 2, and he himself is the propitiation of our sins. Propitiation means the covering, the forgiving, so that they are forgiven and forgotten before the presence of God the Father. That's what the, the ark would represent the throne of God. It's called the propitiatory, that cover of the ark, that God will forgive and forget. So he is the one that can cause that to happen through his blood. Again, it's chapter 2 and verse 2 of the first epistle. He himself is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the whole world. All things were made by him, and without him nothing was made. So he with his blood can pay for all what was created through him. He has to be God, the only one who can pay for us. Becoming flesh and shedding his blood. Tremendous mystery. Hidden from everyone. Until now, until it's been revealed in the new covenant, brethren. So, let's see how we love God. Chapter 14 of the book of John, the gospel of John. Chapter 14, what Christ expects from us. Once he has shed his blood because of our sins, and he forgives us and rescued us, and prepare us then to become his wife, to be one with him as he prayed to the Father. Let them be one. Me in them, them in me, and we in you, O Father. That is the supreme show of love is to be one that's why when a a bride and a bridegroom get together and follow God's law and, and they get married they become one flesh that's the ultimate expression of love in the physical physical realm which God that's what sexually sexuality has to be so respected because it's what God and not be profane like today's world does it my dear brethren in every direction, just polluting what God designed to be the proof that physically a man and a woman become one in the flesh and that will eventually become one with Christ in the spirit and even with the Father. That's the ultimate fulfillment of love, to be one. So we are called to be one with him. And let's see how in chapter 14... And verse 15, John 14, verse 15. If you love me, keep my commandments. So the wife, after the proof of the Passover, she repents and starts producing fruit of change by keeping the commandments and showing our love to the one who loved us beyond what can be imagined. So, if you love me, Keep my commandments. We should know them by heart, brethren. We'll see that in a moment. Now let's read it again in chapter 14. And uh, let's continue the next scripture. Because I want to repeat several times. Christ repeated that statement. In chapter 14 and verse 20. Let's read again. He says... He who has my commandments and keep 
loves them, it is he who loves me. He who has my commandments and keeps them is he who loves me, and he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. He wants to have this intimate, profound communication with us. And let's read it again for the third time. So we read the definition of love by John, is to keep his commandments. We should analyze those commandments and meditate on them, which I don't have time to do today. But let's, in chapter 15 and verse 10 of the same Gospel of John, he repeats, If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. So the greatest deception of false Christianity is that we don't have to keep them. That means it's a complete deception. There is no way we can show God we love him. That's why he says, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and and don't do what I tell you to do? Show me your love like I've shown you my love. So the Feast of Unleavened Bread is the response of the bride to the love of the bridegroom. And we can see it in that light. There are many others, like I said at the beginning. Now, let's read for a moment what should be our attitude toward that law that we promise to keep and that is going to be the covenant that we celebrate in the day of Pentecost. Let's read it for a moment in chapter 119 of the book of Psalms, brethren. You know there are, this is the longest chapter in the book of Psalms. 176 verses that we should read frequently to realize the passion and the intense love that we should have just to respond to the absolute demonstration of love that God had to us, that Jesus Christ had towards us. Let's read the few, first few verses just as an illustration of how we should respond in the second chapter of this love story. How we show our love to Jesus Christ, this is a good description or an introduction to it. We should read the whole book of Psalms and Psalm 119 with that attention to detail, to see the depth of love that is expressed here. All seems to indicate, all indications by King David towards God. Chapter 119 of the book of Psalms. Blessed are the undefiled in the way who walk in the law of the Lord. Blessed are those who keep his testimonies, who seek him with the whole heart. He has to be the only way we respond to the kind of love we have received. They also do no iniquity. That means no transgression. Iniquity means transgression of the law. They walk in his ways. You have commanded us to keep your precepts diligently. Oh, that my ways were directed to keep your statutes. Here we are keeping one of them, Pentecost. Then I would not be ashamed when I look into your commandments. I will praise you with uprightness of heart. That's when that communion, intimate, 
like is written in Psalm 25. The intimate communion of the Lord is with those that keep his covenant. What's the covenant? The Ten Commandments. And all its ramifications with statutes and judgments. We should read and meditate on them as future kings should do. You know that, brethren. I will praise you with my with uprightness of heart. That's verse 7. When I learn your righteous judgments, I will keep your statutes. Oh, do not forsake me utterly. How can a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed according to your word. With my whole heart, I have sought you. Do we do it, brethren? Or are we, because of iniquity abounds today, it's so easy to be in contact with it as our love, is it waxing cold? That's not good enough for God after he gave it all for us. With my whole heart, I have sought you. Oh, let me not wander from your commandments. Your word I have hidden in my heart. That means he has learned at least the Ten Commandments by heart. How many of us do we know them by heart, brethren? It's not a big task to memorize that way that God revealed to us to be to show him we love him and have an intimate communion with him. Your word I have hidden in my heart that I might not sin against you. It's important to know them by heart. So we understand all the implications. Amazingly enough, in many houses and homes and businesses, you see the Ten Commandments on the wall and the two that God took the longest time to speak by himself on Mount Sinai after coming down from the third heaven, the second commandment. They just put, you shall not worship images when it's much longer than that, brethren. And it's going to be the test. In years coming, very soon, of those that will enter the kingdom of God and sit on thrones, those that do not worship the image of the beast, it depends on the second commandment. And that will be a transgression of the first one too. And not all of them, like James explains. And then the fourth commandment, keep the Sabbath holy. How about the rest of it? All the details that God took, the pain and the effort to pronounce himself. We should not cut them off. And we should know them by heart. Your word I have hidden in my heart that I might not sin against you. Are we passionate about it? Blessed are you, O Lord. Teach me your statutes. And you can continue on. That's just an introduction of the attitude of unleavened bread that we should have, brethren. So once those fruits of repentance and that changes take place, when someone is called by the Father to be the bride of his son in a love story, what comes next is Pentecost. Pentecost is the sealing of a marriage contract, the sealing of the third chapter of a love story. 
What does God do? What does God do on Pentecost? There are many things he does. We can make many sermons about the Feast of Pentecost. But in this view that we're seeing today, the love story, Pentecost is the writing of the marriage contract. And it will be written not in tablet of stone, like it was in Egypt with a stiff-necked people. It's with people that have a soft heart, that have repented like those that received the words of Peter, inspired by God, and said, what should we do? Those that have repented and have the humility not to hide their own sins. We have to have the courage and the humility with the help of God not to flee from our own reality. We are all sinners, brethren. We are doomed to death if we do not repent and accept this offer of love and eternal life and being one with God himself through Jesus Christ. So, the day of Pentecost in this context of a love story represents the time when the contract of eternal love is written in our hearts by the seed of eternal life. On the day of Pentecost, we are begotten by the Spirit of God the Father to be the wife of His Son for eternity. That's why He gives us eternal life on that day. But He does not only gives us that eternal, the seed of eternal life, He writes those commandments in our hearts, in our minds, with that same Spirit. He writes the contract of eternal love with the Spirit who has existed forever and will exist forever. And we are given a portion of that Spirit to be part of that same family. And he writes a trace of his character, his love in our minds, so our thoughts all come captive to the obedience of Jesus Christ based on those laws. That's why I tell you we have to memorize them. We should, brethren. I'm not going to be dogmatic about those things, but I think if we have enough passion for God, we will memorize them so we not sin against Him. And they are written in our hearts. So all our emotions are also channeled into that law and the fruit of the Spirit, the self-control. And the fruit of the Spirit might flow through the channels of those laws written in the heart and written in the mind. That's how the third chapter of love is a contract of marriage between the first fruits and Jesus Christ. And the wife said, I will submit to that law, that loving law of Jesus Christ and the Father, who is not grievous, is not hard to keep. So as it is written in us, after we have produced the fruit of repentance, because we love and appreciate his sacrifice, we enter in this formal ceremony of the laws and the contract of us submitting to the master. The wife submits to her husband. And we obey those laws. And we show love and submission at the same time. And he shows us love by showing us the way of real happiness. And we enter into that former 
formal contract and those laws are written inside our minds and our hearts as something for eternity. God expects those that enter into a contract after they have been washed, they have been washed, which means purified, a covenant. In Hebrew, berith means purification. We have been purified from our sins so that those laws can be written inside us. And we have to keep them in our hearts so we don't sin and transgress that contract of love after we will be purified by the very blood of Jesus Christ so we can be one with him. So that's a written contract of submission to a loving master and bridegroom that we say, yes, I submit to your law and I will be obeying it from now on forever until the end of my life. Faithful until the end, like a wife, faithful to her husband. That's why many do not fully understand the day of Pentecost when they think that the resurrection will take place on the day of Pentecost. Mr. Armstrong was right. First coming, first come the begetal, like a child. God put it clearly before our eyes. We that are fathers and you that are wives and mothers. You know that the child has to be begotten first by a seed coming from the father. And that the time of gestation goes on and develops. And then he is born. That's exactly what happens in the spirit. God the father begets us and that's the meaning. One of the meanings of the day of Pentecost is the begetal. When that contract is written down. Well, we don't come yet fully together with Christ, although we can have this profound communion, but only when we are born again on the day of trumpets. Let's not mix the order. First comes the sacrifice of love, then the response of love of the bride, then the marriage contract. And then, like it doesn't exist in our culture, in the Hebrew culture, in the Bible, once you make a marriage contract, like even Mary and Joseph had not yet come together, but they were already married. And once we enter a contract under the blood of Jesus Christ, and those laws, which are the written and the conditions of that marriage contract of love, which obeying the commandments means in our hearts, in our minds, then that's, my dear brethren, the seal that God wants us to respect and have a passion and respect for that law written in our hearts and minds. That's the third chapter of love. The wife submits by showing love to the laws written in her heart and start producing fruit by that obedience that brings the fruit of the Spirit that you all know, brethren. What is our duty after that happens is to reflect the character of the one who begot us, the Father, and the character of the one to whom we are destined to be one for eternity, so we can rule with him. Once the Ten Commandments are written in our minds and hearts, and I won't go to all those scriptures to prove every point I'm trying to make, then we have to grow. And, and it's important to know also that the day of Pentecost, the First fruits are represented with leavened bread. 
with leaven. That's why it's not the day where we are presented on the third heaven, on the sea of glass before the presence of the Father, because sin cannot go into his presence, brethren, from his children. It's not that we were, are living in sin, but we still have a law of sin that Paul speaks about when the 120 disciples of Christ received the Holy Spirit. They were flesh and blood. When we are baptized and we receive the seed of the Holy Spirit in us from God the Father by the laying on of hands, we're still flesh and blood. And we have a time, like the time of gestation, to overcome the law of sin that is in our members. Paul speaks of it in chapter 7 of Romans that you all know. And he mentions it again in chapter 5, verse 16 of the book of Galatians. Chapter 5, verse 16 of the book of Galatians. It says, I say then, walk in the Spirit. That means walk in the law of God that is written here in our hearts and minds. You know that's written, that God will make a new covenant. It is writing His laws in our minds and hearts. That's in Hebrews chapter 8 and chapter 10. I say, walk in the Spirit and you shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. He's speaking to baptized members that have to constantly be on guard, denying ourselves so we don't walk in the flesh. Christ said, you want to follow me? You want to be my bride? Then deny yourself and follow me. Take up your cross. Crucify everything that is of the flesh. For the flesh lusts against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh. And these are contrary to one another. So we have to be overcomers by the power of the Spirit, by prayer and fasting, and reading and nourishing and feeding on God's Word, and putting it to work and meditating on it day and night, so everything goes well for us. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. That means you are not sinning and under the sentence of death of the law. Now the works of the flesh are evident, which are adultery, fornication, uncleanness, licentiousness, or sexual sins are the first that are mentioned here, the ones that are publicized and advertised all over the Internet today, brethren, so that wickedness is really abounding and all the perversions that come with it. Idolatry, sorcery, hatred, contentions, jealousies, Outbursts of wrath, selfish ambitions, dissensions, heresies, envy, murders, as hatred. To anyone is a murder, according to First John chapter 3. Drunkenness, revelries. Drunkenness is being drunk with false doctrines too, apart being drunk with liquor. And the like, of which I tell you beforehand just as I also tell you, as also tell you in time past, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. They are not showing to be the faithful wife, that is to be the wife of Christ, denying herself, obeying his commandments and producing fruit by the constant work of constant prayer. Constant feeding on God's word, constant meditation, and regular fasting, and putting to work. There's no 
other way. We're not doing it. We're being overcome by the world and the environment in which we live. But the fruit of the Spirit is love. Love means denying ourselves. It's like dying. Killing the self. So we are not selfish. So we are generous. And how are we going? And that rivers can flow. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who are Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and desire. That's why we are presented to God as bread with leaven because there is still a law of sin there that we have to overcome. Then when the seven trumpet sounds and we will be born again after being begotten by the Father with a spirit body similar to his glorious body. We have children that resemble us. We will resemble our Father who begot us when we are born again at the sound of the seventh trumpet. That's why Pentecost cannot be the day we are presented before God because we are presented still on this earth with a body, with flesh and a law of sin that needs to overcome and we have to prove all the way until the end of our lives or if we are alive until the sound of the seventh trumpet that we have been faithful by showing love, by showing obedience until the end. That's what Christ says in Revelation 17. Those that are with him are called, but many called, leave. Few are chosen. They have, we have to be called first. Then chosen, and once chosen, once the law is written in us, we still have to be faithful until the end. And when the sudden trumpet sounds, we will be presented before the Father by Jesus Christ. As we will penetrate the heavens with him. And we come to the, I won't go into the marriage supper now. I don't have time to explain it. You know it. Then with spirit bodies, with no leaven, no flesh left. Because we have even overcomers that were presented before the presence of our Father. With a spirit body similar to his and similar to the son, to the body of his son, the bridegroom, to be one with him for the marriage ceremony to take place. First, the marriage contract have to take place that we have to show that we're faithful to it until the end. That's what Mary and Joseph were not yet come together, but they were married. They were marriage. There was a marriage there, a marriage contract. We don't understand that in our culture. But if a wife if the bride was unfaithful, she was ready to be stoned, even if she had not yet come together with her husband. That's one of the stages of marriage, which I won't take time to explain, but it's clearly explained in the Bible. We are married to Christ on the day of Pentecost. That's what this day represents. But we have to be faithful, still living in the flesh as overcomers, until the seventh trumpet sounds or the end of our lives, and then, if we are overcomers, we will be born again with a spirit body to be presented before Christ. And that's the fourth chapter of this love story, brethren. I probably won't have time to cover in detail everyone, but it's interesting that Pentecost is the begetting and trumpets is being born again after we have gone through the gestation period and we have proven 
that we are faithful, or not only called, not only chosen, but faithful. He who endures until the end will be saved. And then the fourth chapter of love is when we will be one, perfectly one with Christ, where we are presented after the sound of the seventh trumpet before our Father in heaven upon the sea of glass. Try to imagine the love that will radiate from the Father to us, who were faithful to Him, to the, from the Son, the Bridegroom, and from us, all based on following that way of the character of God, His laws, being overcomers. The joy will be absolute. There will never be an interruption to that joy anymore, brethren. It will be a marvelous thing that the fourth chapter, when the marriage ceremony takes, the marriage ceremony of writing the contract is Pentecost. The marriage ceremony of, the, of us becoming perfectly one with Jesus Christ and with the Father, responding to the, pray, the prayer he made on chapter 17 of the book of John. Let them be one as we are one. That unity will be the utmost achievement of perfect love. That's what we are destined to. That's what trumpets is the fourth of that, the chapter. And then comes atonement. Atonement is the representation I read to you in 1 John chapter 2 and verse 2 that the sacrifice of Christ was not only for us, the firstborn, but for the whole world. The day of atonement is the second phase. It's not the second sacrifice. It's the same sacrifice represented by the day of atonement, by that goat that dies. Is not that Christ dies again, but is the demonstration of the difference of the lamb for the firstborn and that, and that uh, goat that will be representing Christ himself who dies for the whole world. So that's, that's how this, that scripture that we read in 1 John chapter 2, verse 2. His blood, his sacrifice, his propitiation, forgiveness for our sins, not only for our sins, but for the whole world. So ours were forgiven with the Passover and the Passover ceremony where we take place in the days of unleavened bread. That's why all these feasts are the sign between the bridegroom and the bride. They are essential. They have to be fulfilled every step of it so we can be presented before the Father. And after comes the day of atonement when the second part of his sacrifice, second phase, if you want, of one single sacrifice is for the whole world. That's a great chapter of love. And then comes, of course, the Feast of Tabernacles, seven days. When God will give a banquet to all nations and take away the veil that hides them the truth. And they will come running to the mountain of the Lord. And they are represented by seven days like the banquet of those that get married. Like in the case of Jacob, where he married, he wanted to marry Rachel, but he ended up marrying Leah. And the father-in-law told him, fulfill her week, seven days of banquet. And Christ will be offering, a chapter, according to chapter 25, and verse 6, will be giving a banquet to the whole world. They will be invited to celebrate for seven days, for 1,000 years. That's a marvelous message, brethren, that we have. Another story of love. That's the following chapter. Those seven days of rejoicing, eating at his table and all nations coming to eat and know and worship the master, the one who gave them life, who's offering them eternal life 
and then comes the judgment of the white throne judgment, which is the continuation of that love for all those that never had a chance to know it. Then they will know. Christ will tell them, I died for you. You have to repent of your sins. And they will repent. And the plan of God will be a triumph. And at the end, when death will be cast into the lake of fire, those that will have overcome during the white throne judgment will also receive eternal life and spirit bodies. So they can enter the new heavens and the new earth. And that's the seventh part of this love story. Make a little bit short. And then eternity awaits us with the new heavens and the new earth. And the Father coming here and making this place the capital of the universe. Brethren, those mysteries, this is just part of it. It's fascinating. It's inspiring. And we have to live day by day with a passionate desire to please God and obey him who he's given so much to us. May God bless you all, brethren. Have a great day of Feast of Pentecost.